0: Hey there, I'm Jo and this is Looking Outside, the podcast that explores new perspectives beyond the familiar. I am a CPG innovator and with this show, I'm seeking a fresh take on business topics with some of the most influential and original thinkers. If you find yourself curiously peeking over the fence at what is happening outside your market, industry or field of knowledge, then this show will help you to explore more of that. there welcome to episode two and today we're looking outside brain science and I am so so excited to have on the podcast an aficionado of podcasting herself and the absolutely brilliant brainy even Melina Palmer Hey,
1: Melina. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on board. Let's kick off with um, you telling us a little bit about yourself. I am the CEO of a company called The Brainy Business, and I have a podcast by the same name. I am an applied behavioral economist. I help people in business to understand the psychology of why people buy. I teach at Texas A&M University and applied uh, behavioral economics as well. So I, I also teach on change management, pricing strategy product development in addition to branding marketing communication i wrote a book called what your customer wants and can't tell you which came out in may of 2021 and really just love to help spread the word of behavioral economics as a speaker consultant teacher columnist author all the things
0: <laughs> <laughs> amazing so many accomplishments and you know your book title is really fascinating too because it, it almost makes you sound like a little bit of a psychic do people feel uh-huh. sometimes refer to you as having this special power to uncover these hidden truths inside of the human brain
1: funny enough the original title was unlocked the first episode of my podcast is called unlocking the secrets of the brain really understanding More than what we think people should do, which is often how when we're planning uh, projects or new product launches or marketing campaigns or even internal communication, you know, it's a lot of thinking about what people should do. Well, I bet that they will this or they should know that. And that's not the world that we live in and instead need to understand what people will actually do. And so with behavioral sciences, being able to understand those rules, the brain uses, and then I help people to see, you know, how you can apply that into your day-to-day in an easy way.
0: You do that so well on the show. And it's really interesting. Someone actually Uh, referred to behavioral psychology um, the other day to me by calling it a mysticism, which (sighs) is a little bit linked to think to what you're saying with like unboxing, like uncovering these, you know, hidden gems. And then at the same time, you almost think of it also as like um, almost brain science. It's foundational. It is what it is. There are rules around how things connect to one another inside of us and therefore how they are enacted in the outside world. How do you see it? How do you look at the balance between the the sort of the hard let's say metrics around how the brain and house how human hearts and minds work versus some of the things that maybe are still to be uncovered through the mysticism part of
1: it <laughs> yeah I think the mysticism piece might also be rooted a bit in Rory Sutherland's book alchemy right so a title like that um, kind of makes it feel in that more kind of uh, mysterious and and forecasting space. I talk about it in my book a little bit. My undergrad is in marketing and I worked in brand strategy for uh, quite some time before getting my master's in behavioral economics. There's a lot of you know, throwing noodles at the wall and hoping they're going to stick and going off of your gut instinct of, you know, I, I bet this will work or we really think this. When we understand the rules of the brain, it becomes a lot easier. Properly understood and applied behavioral economics allows you to throw darts while your competition is still throwing noodles. So at least you've got a, <laughs> a good, you know, shot at being there. And there's still so much to learn about the brain that we don't have those silver bullets, you know, of being able to say this always works in this way every single time, so much as knowing that people are loss averse, people are influenced by numbers, people uh, have a bias toward the status quo and things they're familiar with, and we can nudge people at the right moments if you understand the behavior that you're trying to shift. And so there is a lot of art in the science in in that applied space uh, specifically, and I love that.
0: And I love how you said that people are philosophers. We're always sort of trying to uncover, you know, the truth behind culture the reason for why we're here we still feel like we don't know ourselves all Mm. that well or we don't really even understand the world that that has been created around us so if we don't know ourselves then maybe that's part of the reason why we lack the confidence and maybe really truly understanding each other not to get too philosophical about it but I love how you talked about the balance of the creativity and the science and um, you know science is like a the foundation or like the test tube and the art is the magic concoction that goes inside of the test tube Um, should we be flipping this the other way around should the science be the magic ingredient that we add in to uh, better understand
1: human behavior i think it can go both ways and if you look at the field that you are in i think that can help you to determine the right path so if you are someone who already works in r d and you're really really focused on a scientific approach already perhaps you need some additional creativity in what you're doing and being able to you know have that whether it's philosophy psychology um other areas of questioning to be able to think a little bit bigger you know confirmation bias and these other issues that exist there's a lot of value in that if you're on that marketing communication brand strategy side where you have not had the science in the past and you know that your competition doesn't, being able to include that very much can be a secret sauce that helps you to stand out and get ahead of the competition. Uh, Yes, it is likely that integrating the science is a missing link that your industry has likely not had so far in the type of work that you do. And so it will give you that, you know, leg up of throwing darts instead of noodles.
0: <laughs> yes, definitely. And it feels like a, a goldmine, for, particularly for marketers or for business leaders, that's potentially under leveraged. I mean, when we talk about behavioral science or behavioral economics, it's the psychology of human beings and why they do what they do, and it's such a familiar concept in business and marketing consumer goods, we talk about that quite a lot, is sort of leveraging the science of behavior to break our consumers down, create products for them or market products to them. I think we normally boil it down to understanding humans or understanding their motivations or more closely seeing the connection between what they desire and how they behave or how their needs are manifesting in their behavior. I don't think we often talk about the dimensions within that, like the complexity behind the science and all of the multidisciplinary skills that you build to be a behavioral economist, for example. Um, so even looking at things like psychology and economics and sociology, anthropology, there are so many different fields of science of understanding human beings. Do you feel that that's underleveraged in the marketing and business space?
1: You know, it really is my hope that over time, I think behavioral economics, behavioral science, whichever kind of terminology you prefer will be required in all business, schools it really is so critical to the way that we interact with other people the way we think about addressing customers that it is it needs to be a core part of any business curriculum it's definitely not there yet you know i've been talking on this subject for years and years now and still even where the field has gained a lot of traction whether i'm doing podcast interviews or i'm you know speaking on stages or whatever uh, people will say what do you do you're a what what's behavioral <laughs> echo what you know like <laughs> it's uh, it's still unknown for a lot of people and you know yet to be discovered so there is a lot of blue ocean still in that space and opportunity to grow and be at the forefront of something that is going to be so important as businesses develop. At the end of 2019, when Bloomberg came out with their top jobs of the next decade, behavioral scientist was number one on the list. Above data analyst is number one. Mm -hmm. And yes, you know, 2020 shifted things a little bit differently than what anyone was expected at the end of uh, 2019. Uh, But in that way you know understanding human behavior why people you know felt the need to hoard toilet paper understanding humans and what they will do and why and being able to predict that better that's what behavioral science is all about it
0: definitely felt like the demand for understanding human beings just grew tremendously in 2020. I mean, in the food space and Mars Wrigley, we spoke about that quite a lot. That's like the insights team became more in demand than ever before because we were helping people understand the context of the situation that was happening and you know, hopefully helping them to sort of guide around what potentially might happen. So how much of what you do is sort of understanding why people do things today versus projecting out to how they might react to something
1: in the future? I would say every project includes some of both of those things. So, you know, in a world where, you know, a, a client may have a problem of saying, You know, hey, people aren't going to be going into the grocery store. And so we have to deal with apps that aren't necessarily there. We don't have end caps anymore. We don't have that option at the checkout line where people are going to be, you know, picking up a candy bar on their way out. And so what do we do to get people to notice us and not have a huge drop off when you don't even see us in the aisle anymore i always then start to make sure that we're working on the right problem because More often than not, what feels like the correct problem is, is not, and people don't spend enough time understanding what the problem truly is. So helping the client get to the root of what the real problem is and what, what do we need to shift and why aren't people doing the things we want them to do? And then understanding through a literature review to see what already exists, what tests have been done, what people know already. So we can then develop updated signage, or we can have ads within an app or whatever it is that we may need to be that behavioral intervention to shift the behavior as you go, Mm -hmm. the context is changing. And that is really important as you develop those interventions. And that's a lot of that um, art. You need the foundational knowledge of all the science and how things work together to be able to have that artistic approach of how you apply it.
0: So I can imagine that if you're doing that, if you're trying to balance like the, all of the science that you know, and you obviously know so much and it's so sort of ingrained in formal studies and everything that you've been practicing over the years, and then you're trying to find like the artistic angle into it that sort of pulls in what's new, what's current, what's contextual. How do you personally sort of pull yourself sometimes out of the science and, and look at something that's completely sort of different or left a field or that, that element of um, surprise or disruption to
1: challenge your own thinking I didn't have a you know I'm gonna get the PhD and be a professor and work in the lab and then oh I guess I'll help clients the problem that you often get when companies are trying to work with academics is that a corporation has goals and very quick turnaround times and they know exactly what they think they need and they need it very quickly when they're ready to pull the trigger it might take a long time before the project actually (laughs) starts from when you have the idea right on the academic side very focused on getting papers published and on the new revolutionary thing that doesn't necessarily align with the goals of the company and the two don't speak all that well to one another uh, very often And so for me i really have become like a conduit there where i have this tie-in with the human behavior lab at texas a&m university where i teach Uh, we can run tests there uh, really get into you know eeg and skin response and facial expression analysis and eye tracking and all of that making sure that it's interesting to the academic team they know what they need to do making sure they stay in line with the corporate goals and that the corporation is able to get a study that is going to be valuable kind of for both sides and that everybody stays on track. So being able to be on both sides and speak both languages is, is really a critical piece of ensuring that that is the best approach For both I work with all sorts of organizations um, you know from tech to banking to entrepreneurs all across the board and so having that differing perspective of not saying I only work with X type of Mm -hmm. company uh, means you know I might be able to pull something from a veterinarian I've worked with and say wow you know this is really this applies to your you know Products with candy bars. It may not seem like it would, you know, but it can.
0: And um, I can imagine also that because you still have that connection to the universities who are publishing the papers and who are still doing all of those formal studies, that it allows you to keep sort of learning and and keeping breadth inside of your knowledge base as well. I'm really interested in what you said before, where we're still working the brain out and we're still learning more about how the brain works. Um, what's something that's sort of come up recently that's surprised you.
1: Hmm. So many interesting things that happen. (laughs) A lot of what is coming up that people are talking about a lot right now is this balance between machine learning ai and the behavioral sciences and there is a lot of uh, you know research investigation conversation about if they are at odds with one another or how they might work together i think in a lot of ways uh, behavioral science and ai are like the new qualitative and quantitative approach to to business where you have to have this human element and understanding and big questions and looking at you know your observational research is just done through this behavioral science type of lens whereas the you know machine ai stuff is able to get lots and lots of data and you still need to do both to be able to properly have impact within a business i don't know that it's surprising that that's uh something that's come out but it is something that a lot of people are talking about right now and i find i find very interesting
0: and even in the insights industry is how much of mm-hmm. the AI will replace the analysis that's being done. And mm-hmm. I think it goes back to what you were saying before. It reminded me, I did a neuroscience test on an, an ad, a TV ad, a few years ago. Yeah. and. I was so intrigued by it. I sort of went into the lab myself and said, can you just put the cap on me? I'll watch the ad. I want to see what happens in my brain. And I'm yeah. watching the TV screen afterwards and all of the things that were graphed. And of course, that could make absolutely no sense of it other than just going like, is my brain okay? Is it healthy? It looks like it's going off the charts. <laughs> um, so all of that is still you know, very complex. But to your point, all of that data doesn't tell you the so what. It doesn't tell you what your business should do. And that's, I guess, maybe... Going back to the balance of science and art, the art comes from the human interpretation.
1: One of my students, who had worked for a very large beverage company at one time, was talking about going through um, that. You know, they had done some eye tracking and, you know, sent someone into the grocery store aisle just to kind of see what they were looking at, what happened, but it, it wasn't that useful of data. It's like, well, wow, that's not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> just sending someone into a grocery store and there are, uh, you know, a gajillion and a half things that you could be looking at at any given time. And it's so much data input without a, a question you're trying to answer. And like you said, with the TV ad, just to say, oh, you know, we were just watching and, um, yeah, we, you know, lots of things happened. Okay, like, <laughs> so what, right? uh, you want again, that's why you want to spend more time thinking about the problem, what it is that you're trying to do. I talk a lot about thinking in small steps and that's in business. You know, we are working on so many things at once and say you're doing a large project and, you know, a direct mail piece is one of a million things that you're doing. And so the way you might be evaluating that is, you know, we're going to see if people bought or not, then we have this thing for tracking it Well, they either bought or they didn't. But the average person, we make 35,000 decisions every single day. And a lot of them are these little micro moment, these little tiny decisions. And so you have to be thinking about those small decisions and where you can find your nudgeable moments in there. They need to receive it, they need to, Notice the headline, find it interesting enough to then look at the additional copy, notice the imagery, get more information, go to your website, type it in on their phone without getting distracted by Instagram or a text message they received, and then go to the you know, pricing page and product information and click buy and put it in their cart and get their credit card. Right? There are a lot of points where they can get lost in that process. And if you're not thinking about all those little micro moments, you're going to be just you know, bleeding potential customers the whole way. And so when you can think about those small points and the behaviors within them, I like to think of it like bumpers when you're going bowling. How can you just keep them going down the line as easily as possible, reduce the sludge as we talk about in behavioral science and uh, make it as easy as possible.
0: I love that. I love how you distill all of these complex terms and, and science, you know, Uh, knowledge into something that's really simple and really relatable. Um, We often uh, I think as people get stuck in patterns of behavior um, Mm -hmm. in terms of what we know, what we're familiar with, what we like and I think that transfers from how we operate inside of our lives with our hobbies and how we spend our time but also with how we work and the types of career paths that we go down the types of things that we think will garner us success we sort of i think fall into these predictable patterns i know that you've spoken a little bit about um, things like familiarity bias hurting social proof and i'm sort of connecting that in my mind to like life's guidebooks of like the guidebook of success based on what others have done, based on a path that's already been paved for you that all you have to do is walk down it and you will garner success. So how much of familiarity bias or hurting is a positive thing versus how much of that do we need to be really aware of and actually counter?
1: Even the example of, you know, The most successful people wake up at 5 a.m. every day and they do X, Y, and Z. And they, you know, they sit and they journal for however long. And there's a lot of survivorship bias that is actually tied in there where we're asking people who have been successful how they were successful. They're saying what they think they were doing. Uh, You forget about all the people who get up at 5 a.m. who are not successful and all the people who, uh, you know, are successful that don't get up at 5 a.m. And you just get too focused on. On that sort of silver bullet approach so uh, for one i would say if you're not a morning person you know forcing yourself to get up and uh at, at that time isn't going to turn you into you know whatever guru you know oprah or whomever is getting up at that time automatically it's not just a, a one item thing we're very complex and so there's a lot that comes into that when you talk about familiarity bias and hurting. The subconscious brain is making the vast majority of our decisions for us using simple rules of thumb, uh, that help to get through those 35,000 decisions every single day. And so it is built on being able to try to do as much as it possibly can itself and not hand things over to the conscious brain, which is much slower, uh, and takes more time. And so with that, the subconscious likes a predictability, it likes to know what's coming and have a rule. We also have status quo bias. You know, we want to say if this, then that I got a rule for that and I don't need to bother. We just go, go, go. And so we have a bias for things that have worked for ourselves or for others because it feels safe. We're a herding species. And so we see, well, other people have been successful by doing this. so. If I do that, I will be too. They've already tested it. When we are uncertain about something, when it's new territory, we're also much more likely to herd than when we're confident and we've been somewhere for a long time. And so when you look at a path to success and you're starting in a new industry or you're launching a podcast or you're going into a new role or whatever it happens to be, you are going to want to look to others to how you can have a safe and as fast as possible approach this like super throwback right example here (laughs) um but justin bieber being discovered by usher on youtube he was doing something very different than what anyone else was doing at the time to be discovered and then you know the flood of the world it's like oh if i do this i'll be discovered too just like he was but then you need to be the the first person that's doing the new thing on TikTok, or the first person that creates this video about something no one else is talking about or creating a podcast where no one else is you have to get out of the herd in order to be seen so that you can then create your own herd of people that are going to follow you. In order to have people that can find you, you have to stand out, which means you have to get a little bit uncomfortable and do something no one else has been doing. So there's, Uh, you know a balance to that and you know finding something that you want to do and just going all in on it and and trying it out and know that even if it feels scary or uncomfortable it doesn't mean it's wrong uh, because your brain is wired to like to feel safe with that status quo Mm.
0: and the brain likes to fall into predictable patterns like you were saying before if this then that Mm -hmm. Um, and so then how much of stretching our brains like looking at things that you aren't looking at, or you know, breaking out of the computational propaganda bubble of the news that you're served, for example, or even you know, talk, talking to different people with a diverse background, how mm-hmm. does that benefit our brain?
1: Well, by getting out of your own way, you know, getting rid of some of that confirmation bias, thinking about what other people might say, um, and having genuine interest. I, I talk a lot about being a curious questioner. When we ask someone a question, uh, you know, getting back to a you know Stephen Covey approach here of you know, not many people ask to listen; they ask and then they're thinking about their response, and so you think I'm going into this debate. This person is difficult. I need to get them onto my side. And if you are going into a discussion with someone say on another team and you're all, you're fighting for resources or something, you want to get them onto your side and you are listening to everything they say with the intent to convince them why they are wrong <laughs> and why they need to agree with you. It's going to be really hard to get them to change because they are going to be fighting you <laughs> every step of the way. If and, and you would be too, right? Your your guard is up. There's a problem there. If you instead go in with this approach of you know, we can all be right, uh, even if we're saying completely different things, we could be having the same perspective and truly listen with an intent to understand where they're coming from so you can have a bigger discussion about what you're working on.
0: But also, I think when you're coming into a meeting and you think you've been invited at the table to have a seat because you are bringing that unique skill that you've been building over years mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. whatever function it is that you are you're representing and so you almost wear that as a bit of a badge without um you know I love what you were saying sort of being curious a curious questioner and really having a more of a conversation where you're listening versus where you're ready to speak mm-hmm. um i think that just all helps us to think in a much more open way and then everything else you were saying just sort of made me think about uh, cognitive um, ambidexterity of mm. trying to think about how we flex inside of how we how we think and I think that that starts with how we're exposed to different things and how we're open to looking at different situations, different perspectives, um, different sort of diverse, fields like, um, you know, behavioral economics and everything else that, that's wonderful that we talked about on the show. So I have one last question for you in that vein is how do you look outside of what you normally do? How do you pull yourself out of behavioral economics and science and everything else in the corporate world? What's something that's completely outside of that, that sort of um, stretches you into new ways to look at things?
1: My husband is a great sounding board for me and we have um, differing uh, approaches and and thoughts and he knows enough about what I do and I know enough about how his brain works, you know, that we're able to uh, balance each other out. So when I'm thinking of something new, um, you know, he can bring in a different perspective or ask a question or help me to see where some of my own biases might be getting in my own way. That's one of the things even th- when we know these things exist we can't you know turn off our brain and say no no we don't do that anymore it's not it's it would be like saying okay brain like the color red is no longer affiliated with the word apple ever again i don't want to make that association that's done you can't and so the biases and things that we have exist for a reason. We can't fully shut them off and within ourselves, they can be difficult to see. So having someone who can help be part of that conversation, you know, for me, uh, is my husband either to say like, mm, I think you're bike shedding right now. Maybe you should uh, <laughs> work on this other thing or, or get a different perspective. He's, he's a good, uh, balancing point for me and watching really interesting tv shows where i get to look for different like psychology of the you know why people are doing things and what's so interesting i like to do that too balance with netflix (laughs) i
0: love that also thank you so much for being on the show i really appreciate your time and sharing all of your brilliant wisdom with us we really appreciate it absolutely thanks for having me Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe, give it a rating, and share it. Until next time, this is Joe. Keep looking outside.